Welcome on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur. You can catch this guy sitting on the logo in Philadelphia. It's Benny Horowitz. <laughs> I had no problem with it. I loved it. I Giannis, loved it. enjoy yourself. Take a seat. Who cares? <laughs> I hate how, how uh, sad people get over stuff like that. I feel like Giannis runs into like a weird American blender every once in a while where he's just like, wait, why is that even bad? Yeah, I don't understand. It's fun, aren't you? Don't you people? Aren't you allowed to have fun? Americans hate fun. That's oh. the one thing I've learned. <laughs> a guy, yeah, a guy <laughs> tastes a smoothie for the first time and he can't live it down into into like his his like mid twenties. Like, like, come on, like we got to give people a break here. So can I tell you some fun that happened? Yeah, my my daughter goes to bed or takes a little nap today, and you know I'm about to put on a show for my son so he can relax a little bit. Mm. And I'm like, hey, you mind watching a little little league pass from last night just for a few minutes till you get bored? You know, he's like, yeah, sure. I let him pick his team. He chose the Charlotte Hornets. Oh, of just course, because cool. of course he did. <laughs> so I go in and I get to watch eight full uninterrupted minutes of basketball with my five year old son. And we actually got through it. And he was asking some questions. It was so cool, man. It was like the first taste I got at home of like just chilling with another person <laughs> watching a game. I haven't had that since I was in like my late teens living in college apartments and shit. So that was fun. He did he did check out, you know, around uh <laughs> you know, when there's too much Cody Zeller time. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you're not keeping a five-year-old involved. But it was fun for a few minutes. What he kind liked of questions? That, he liked that Jokic had uh, the nickname The Joker. I was trying to throw <laughs> a lot of nicknames out there, yeah. keep it spicy, you know. But that was fun. That was a cool cool stepping stone. When you introduced LaMelo Ball to your son, as I have no doubt you did it within the first 30 seconds, did you introduce him as Mello or LaMelo? I did do LaMelo. Okay, thank God. Because I have a respect <laughs> for the history of the game. Zerdi Amello, who just recently broke the top 10 all That's time right. in scoring. If we really get into this, we're going to have to discuss him on a context for a long time. So I will stick with La Mello. Are people just calling him Mello? Yeah. That's not, that ain't right. I know. It's like a big right. like there's there's like a, a number of debates online because you know I'm slowly aging into the old guy on 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 internet like my entire demographic <laughs> and now these Gen Zers come along and they're wearing their baggy pants and they're dissing the side part and apparently Lamelo because they've known this kid for five years now and that's all that's all it really takes to be known Lamelo yeah. is the mellow and it's just honestly outside of the Olympics and that national championship. These kids may have a point. Oh, you think so? I mean, <laughs> I mean, well, I can see it. I don't agree, but I can episode, see it. Making the case for Chris Webber in the Hall of Fame based on can you tell the story of the NBA without Carmelo Anthony? You know oh, what no, I mean? You... Syracuse yeah. championships, Olympics. <laughs> I mean, at least he made it to a finals. Yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, yeah, you got to give Melo his due. I'm not into that. But the one thing I'm liking about Lamelo Ball is the idea that. I don't think he would like it. No. You know, he seems like a kid who's kind of tapped into the culture of basketball a little better than that. And he seems to tip his hat to the right people. Nah. He seems smarter than certainly his father. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's like what we talk about on this show all this time. 
about people being raised in like showbiz. I mean, you want to talk about a kid who's who's went through it. I mean, having your whole like he had his puberty like on Instagram on wax and like a TV yeah. show. Like I can't imagine. I I don't think we've had a lot of players raised up like this. So man, like I give him a lot of credit for overcoming everything that he's had to obstacles that. And, you know, you, you could call it privilege, you can call it obstacles, but you know, he definitely had to deal with a lot at a very early age. I mean, imagine being 14 years old, scrolling through your phone on, like, the comments section of a post your father just made. Yeah. You know, and just watching him get torn to fucking shreds from a hundred <laughs> different directions. And what's a better uh, roadmap, what's a better lesson for you to handle your own celebrity and and to handle social media and how to make yourself come off right than watching the mistakes of someone yeah. right before his face so maybe the the greatest uh lesson lavar ball taught his children <laughs> is how not to be which is sometimes a valuable lesson and you know, you know we talk about how kids have access to you know all the music all the movies from like the past 50 years if you're growing up on all of these like tapes of like like uh, Imagine being able to grow up having a career worth of tape of Jason Kidd, John Stockton, Magic Johnson, all of these. I mean, like, of sure. course you're gonna pick it up. That, and I've 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 had this theory for the longest time that playing these video games, whether it be the 2K or or the FIFA, if you have the ability, you can go out there and, and do it, and it really has enhanced the IQ of all these kids. I think. It's true. Look, look what happened to skateboarding after uh, Tony right. Hawk. All of a sudden, there's like 13-year-old kids jumping out of helicopters, and all of us are like, whoa. Whoa, I was just still trying to shove it over a manhole. What happened? Sex games just ruined it. Yikes. Oh, man. Well, normally we use this segment to kind of warm up things, but, you know, we've kind of been, you know, just freewheeling today. But anyway... Because I guess we kind of hold true to a format. Benny, let's get into this damn music history. I have two. One that's really important to me and one that's just fascinating. Mm. So on this day in 1919, the city of New Orleans was filled with jazz music. Now, the reason for this was fairly insane. It played throughout the city of New Orleans after a serial killer threatened to murder anyone not listening to it. <laughs> so there okay. was a killer known as the Axeman mm. who prior to uh, this day in 1919 had murdered eight different victims throughout New Orleans. He then sent in a letter to the New Orleans Times. It was published on March 14th and it read on the 19th at 12.15 earthly time on next tuesday i'm going to pass over new orleans in my infinite mercy i'm going to make a little proposition to you people here it is i am very fond of jazz music and i swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time i have just mentioned if everyone has a jazz band going well then so much the better for you people one thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night will get the axe. <laughs> this was an open letter. So apparently that night, tonight, in 1919, New Orleans was filled with jazz music. 
And as he promised, no one was killed that night. So I guess it worked. Apparently, he did uh, strike again later that year, and he was never caught. So this night in 1919, New Orleans was filled with jazz music to prevent an axe murderer. Pretty wild, huh? I kind of don't even know how to respond to this. I mean, like I, I, have, I have so many questions, but also none at the same time. It's like it's like he heard like the Passover story and was like, "But make yeah. it jazz." Yeah, he's like some <laughs> version of like he's like jazzy Elijah, like coming coming to drink the wine on your cup. You got to leave the door open for the axe man. I hate the joke since you know about a hundred yeah. years ago, this guy killed a lot of people, but that is fascinating. Okay, and here's number two. This one actually just means a lot to me. And on this day uh, in, I'm sorry, in 1990, Andrew Mm. Wood, lead singer of the band Mother Love Bone, died of a heroin overdose at age 24. Mm. Now, the reason this is important, and I don't know if this predates your time, is Mother Love Bone was one of the foremost inventors of the Seattle grunge movement. Uh, Prior to all the other bands forming, This guy, Andrew Wood, kind of had this glammy thing that he took from sort of the Hollywood 80s thing going on and brought it into a much more serious context in the Seattle scene and started making music and became a very widely known person. Uh, And the first band, Mother Love Bone, was also with Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard, who eventually formed Pearl Jam. When he died of the heroin overdose at 24... They formed the band Temple of the Dog to pay honor to his life with the song Hunger Strike. But I think the the thing that gets talked about most with this is that Temple of the Dog existed because it was fronted by Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell and became very famous. But I don't think Andrew Wood and the band Mother Love Bone gets nearly enough credit for their role in sort of turning late 80s hair metal into what we knew as like early 90s grunge. They were one of the major gears that was able to make that transition. And he died so young that we didn't really get a chance to give him credit. So Andrew Wood, big ups. Well, Benny, I'm going to switch it up a little bit and try to use this as a segue to our first topic of the day. But on this day in 2006, Shakira was set to become the first pop star to release a single only in the form of a mobile download. Mm. God, I've. All right. Who doesn't miss the Vcast? Hold on. Oh, uh, six. Yeah. Oh, six. Good for you, Shakira. 2006. Uh, the singer's uh, forthcoming release of Hips Don't Lie would not be <laughs> issued in the U.S. as a CD or as a download via the internet, huh. but would only be available on Verizon. So shout out to that. Man. Wow. Benny, I got to ask you this. During that time, did you have a song that was your, your, not the dial tone, but like the the song that would play for people as they called you? And what song was it? Yeah, I I never had one for a cell phone. Yeah. But I had one for a pager for years. (laughs) And it was the beginning of the song Sky Pager off the low end theory by A Tribe Called Quest, where he goes, do you know the importance of a sky page up? Do, 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 That was my message on my smart beep beeper for probably about five or six years. <laughs> so there's a handful of people that 
you could make that reference to that would crack up laughing. <laughs> I just remember for like 10 years, way after it was cool, my mom had a little known song called Summertime by Bon Jovi as her. Thing. Oh, Bon Jovi is not even the Fresh Prince. Right, exactly. It was uh, <laughs> It was off of the, uh, oh my God, Lost yeah, Highway right. record. It was like yeah. a way B-side, but she had it on there for like All 10 right. years. So. All right, mom's at least coming with the deep cuts. <laughs> Speaking of streaming and the forefathers of it, according to Medea Research, which I thought was hilarious, the Tyler Perry <laughs> reference in, in this research company, has published its estimate of what of what the global record music industry did in 2020. And Benny, a lot of people made a lot of money off music. Um, this includes major labels, indie labels, and DIY artists. Uh, they generated uh, around uh, $23 billion in 2020, which is up $1.5 billion from 2019. So the record labels, some people may have looked at 2020 as a bad year for music, but at least the people at the top made a lot of money. Benny, what do you make of this? All right. Well, we've gotten into this plenty on this show, yeah. right? And the one thing I've been making clear for a long time is my resentment towards this idea that the music industry has recovered from the digital age. It's not true. Mm. Only the top has recovered from the digital age. And everything that's set up has been set up for middle tier and lower to fail at this point. Now, this is, again, another tip of the cap to that. The only thing I like about this, and it's one thing I've learned through hosting podcasts and whatnot, is you know they, they launched this website with all the trends and all the more detailed numbers and how they pay people. And the one thing that'll do is the analytics themselves will help people. Mm. Better laying out your numbers, how they compare with other people's numbers. You could be a little more hands-on and with a little more thought to your product on Spotify. And in that way, it's helpful. But I'm automatically reading these numbers and there's a couple alarming things that stood out to me. It's, you know, one of the benchmarks they used uh, for success is this idea that 13,000 artists are pulling in at least $50,000. Now, the first thing is they've said a hundred times in this uh, article that it's artist catalogs. Now, the one thing that's always a... a disconnect here between the way people read it and what actually happens is why do you always think that the musicians themselves are being paid off artist catalogs? Mm. If you're hearing songs from mid-level bands that you quite like that actually were on major labels or something and got attention, there's a very good chance that those bands are still paying back those major labels that any of these streams that are coming back are going basically straight to the label and they're not seeing any of it especially for a certain uh, a, for a certain tier of artists. Now, even if an artist does own their music, say a band is uh, split up five ways, okay? Five ways even, which uh -huh. is kind of unique. And they're each uh, taking what you would have to take off from Spotify for management, for all sorts of uh, up top expenses that you have to break off right away. Then you're breaking it up five times. Then you're paying taxes. So like if your big number is like, oh, you're getting 100,000 streams and you're getting um, $50,000 a year, 
if you're talking about a band scenario, even an artist scenario, it's not that much money. It really isn't. And the fact that this is still like a prorated industry, it doesn't make any sense. And it's only weighted to the top. They're only releasing these numbers to make it seem another way it's not. They weren't releasing these numbers when there was hard copies of albums. They didn't want anybody to know how much money they actually were making because they were making so much. Now, another thing I was wondering is like, they're even like, okay, for 870 artist catalogs, they're making a million dollars a year because of streams. Now, I would like to see like side-by-side numbers to what that equated to in the 80s and 90s in record sales and what it's equating to now in streaming money. So just because these people are getting paid, they're not getting paid what they used to. They still would have made more in the previous uh, construct of how it was set up. And that's the point I keep making about this industry is that they claim they fell apart. They were too big to fail. You know what I mean? They recreated the whole industry to go towards them but never fixed this disconnect between artist and music and money. The only person who's doing this right maybe might be SoundCloud because they're taking the prorated thing out of it and just paying you per stream. Very direct, you know what I mean? And as far as accounting and stuff goes, it's much simpler for artists and a much easier way to take in your money. So I kind of found this whole thing as a uh, giant sort of... um, press release mm. to tell you how much uh how how much we're doing how much we care even though over the previous like years and years and years and years of uh artists complaining to you about your service the only people you really cater to through this was the people at top so i kind of find it hollow mm. i'm not too stoked on it um anybody who's a diy musician it even says in this if you average nearly 35,000 monthly listeners, you're making $4,000 a year. Mm. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, you can't do 35,000, that's a lot. That's good. You know what I mean? And that should be turning into some money for people. So, I mean, eventually this thing is going to eat itself, right? Where they're going to have to redirect. And if bands, especially independent music, is going to be able to be housed on different places where it can be paid more directly... They're going to lose that business, but I don't know. They're a fucking monolith and they figured it out and they're golfing with the heads of all the record companies. And I don't know, man, the fucking the vacuum just still lives on. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's really important for people to point out that point that you made about you know, the 50,000 a year people. I feel like when, when people hear that, they're like, oh, that's probably just one person. That's not one right. person. And then taxes, it's like the whole thing in like Hollywood. If, if you sell a script for 85 grand, you're really only going to see 40 of it because right. after agents and like lawyers get in, in, in the way. So there has to be a more equitable way to do it. But the interesting thing, and you touched on it, these numbers suggest that uh, the the streaming services they grew by 2.3 billion right. to 14.2 billion in 2020. So essentially, the music business is tied directly to the streaming, which seems short-sighted that these labels are going to put all their eggs in the basket of these streaming services, especially when you think about the fact that let's take Spotify for instance, right? Outside of the three guys that started it, their main shareholders that own like upwards of like between 10 to 20% of it, it's Morgan Stanley, T. Rowe Price, and China's Tencent. 
Wow. So in the same way that like America kind of used pop culture to kind of use imperialism to get into these places, get the like American ideas in there. The rest of the world is kind of shooting right back at us. Be like, all right, well, Mm. you have this debt. All right. We're going to buy it and kind of own your culture now. Yeah. 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 You're right. And and you're saying it right there. I mean, it's like if there's anything you can reliably count on. Right. It's that businesses are going to help themselves. Yeah. And if you're dealing with companies like that at the top of this, I mean, there's no art to their thinking. There's uh-uh. no creation to their thinking. There's no idea of who is making the things and how all they care about. All these people care <laughs> yeah. about is their dollar turning into more than a dollar through the course of a year. That's it. So there's just this giant disconnect between the two things. And, uh, I mean, again, the only thing I could ever see changing this is a real strong push from bigger and bigger and more influential artists and doing it together where they could actually dent these people's pockets a little bit. But until that happens, this is just going to keep going and going. And I kind of think with these record labels, right? So it's kind of like, the Netflix thing from like 10 years ago. You Mm. lease your content to these streaming services. The streaming service becomes bigger. And then next thing you know, a place like Spotify or like Apple will just start signing artists directly. And you're like, where did my foothold go? And then you kind of pivot to trying to be like, oh, we're going to start our own streaming service, blah, 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 blah. And it just becomes this whole scary thing for everybody where, because at the end of the day, it's only going to hurt the consumer. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. Boy, Benny, you know, I love slash hate how we become the business of entertainment pod, but I think it's I think it's it's an important thing for people to realize, all right, you enjoy something. Where is the money here coming from? And you've always got to follow it to see who's profiting off of what you like. And boy, there isn't anybody in entertainment that probably that profits more of off what you like than LeBron James. And this past week, LeBron James and private equity firm Redbird Capital are set to purchase stakes in the Boston Red Sox, totaling up to 12%. Uh, this, this according to Axios, uh, who gets a lot of things right, especially in the political and business sphere. Majority owner of Fenway Sports Group, John Henry, Henry has agreed to sell 11% to Redbird, 1% to James. Uh, Redbird's new purchase means that Fenway Sports Group, with which owns a bunch of sports teams in the U.S. and abroad as well as the regional network which is the key thing there where a lot of the money comes uh there's conflicting reports over lebron james investment in liverpool which you know he, he already had that investment some people are reporting that uh he is furthering his his investment in liverpool as well as in in the red sox um but some people are saying that his stake is shifting from liverpool to the red sox so we'll see how that goes uh but benny what do you make of this uh, LeBron furthering his foothold as, you know, all roads in this kind of lead to him being an, an NBA owner, but he's kind of grooming himself. He's kind of seeing, all right, how does this international sphere work? And I think that this is just kind of the next step to him being a better Michael Jordan. Yeah, I think you 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 brought up the biggest point to this right off the bat, which is, you know, the, the detailed business stuff of this is is a little more than than I'm capable of understanding. Hmm. But uh, this does, absolutely, it's apropos in the fact that he's doing everything he can to pave his way to be an NBA owner. 
I don't know if it's not in the the rule. I'm assuming you can't play and own a team at the same time. <laughs> um, so I think you know, as we've seen, most of these uh, uh, purchases are from like partner groups where you have to hedge with these people and these people. And I think LeBron is going to be in this unique situation by the time he's 40, 45 years old and out of the league and kind of ready to do this. He's going to be ready to go. Yeah, he's got he's got the framework in. He's he's been an owner of these major teams for years, watching the money come in, moving it to different places. So I think this is a classic uh, LeBron James staying ahead of the game. And I'd be shocked if this didn't lead to him owning a team eventually. One thing I love about this, and I don't know, you know, how much this was LeBron's choice or how much he fell into it just because of his ownership group. But tell me this isn't kind of a cultural fuck you. The fact that he owns a team in Boston. You know what I mean? This is a historically uh, shit town to black athletes. Um, Almost every black athlete that's walked out of that town has talked about the violent racism that they face. Just happened even recently with Red Sox players. So the idea that LeBron and Maverick Carter come in and out of all teams, you know, he wears a Yankees hat all the time. He's from Ohio. He's got nothing to do with this. He's an outsider. And here he is owning the Sox. And I am just cracking up already about the conversations having on like bar stools in Wooster right now. We're like, you're fucking kidding me. LeBron in this. T- this is my terrible New England accent. But they're going crazy. I'll tell you that. Casey Affleck and all of his friends and all these nut <laughs> oh, don't jobs bring Casey there. into this. He's better than Ben. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's another hilarious part of me. Like if I could think of any franchise out there that I'd want LeBron James, one of the most outspoken black athletes in the history of sport yeah. to be a part of, it would probably be this or like the Utah jazz. So this fucking cracks me up. Um, but I mean, here, here's the question I have. Yeah. When LeBron, let's say, undoubtedly becomes an owner of a team, who mm-hmm. knows which team it is, is he going to be like like a Mark Cuban owner, Jerry Jones owner? Is he going to be hands-on with every decision, or is he going to like leave it, leave it to the brass? I see him being a guy that kind of leaves it to the brass because I love the evolution of – the players becoming business owners, right? Mm. In in the sense where you have Magic, and I feel like Magic, you know, he has a lot of business dealings, but up until recently wasn't well-respected in the sports and entertainment, despite being, you know, there's no name that you probably associate, maybe outside of Kobe, with the Lakers. And mm. then you see Michael Jordan, and it's like Jordan and the rise of shoes and, and that whole brand. And then he becomes the owner. And it kind of seems we keep taking these steps. One could argue that uh, that Michael could be more hands-on in Charlotte. I feel like, you know, we always talk about, oh, is LeBron trying to do what Jordan? I think he's trying to, like, take what Magic did and what Michael did and kind of put them both together into this global behemoth. And we're already starting to see it. So I don't think he's going to be this vocal Mark Cuban owner because Mark Cuban in the cultural space, when he bought the Mavs, had a lot to prove. LeBron's got nothing to prove to anybody. I could see him sitting back in the owner's box and being like, oh, hello, look at me on black royalty because that 
is, I mean, we, we've never seen anything like what LeBron could possibly be in this country, maybe outside of Jay-Z. So that is the next role, that stoic royal figure in American society. And you know this pains me to say, but that's where we're going. It's inevitable. I mean, I love the visual. <laughs> Just sheerly for the visual of LeBron up in a press box, king's chair, <laughs> velvet, an ascot. <laughs> Maybe a pipe, you know, something like that. I do love the visual. But you always forget something about these guys. And it's the same thing we talked about when you thought Tom Brady was going to (laughs) retire. Is that these are the most competitive human beings on earth. Yeah. And the idea that, like, LeBron James would sit back, smoke his pipe, and allow someone else to function a team that doesn't look so good. You know what I mean? Like, like if there's a 20-team 20 win team out there. You think LeBron James is just sitting back in his chair, enjoying life. It's probably driving him nuts on the inside. Right. So, but I do think the thing that keeps him away from being a Mark Cuban owner is you have to understand your own presence. And Mm. I think that's where Michael Jordan's been smart. If Michael Jordan is courtside, every single practice, if he's vocal, if he's courtside every single game and if he's vocal, what does that do to the actual players themselves? Yeah. You know what I mean? You're freaking out. This is the best player of all time, way up your ass all the Hmm. time. It would probably like lead to worse results. Yeah. So I think he has to balance that. I have a feeling he's going to be super hands-on as far as it comes to the organization team and the team management. Hmm. But I think he will be hands-off on the surface where he's not going to be on the court yelling at refs like Mark Cuban because, you know, by the time he's 45 years old, he's probably going to be even bigger. He's going to look like fucking <laughs> Thanos by then. You don't want some 18-year-old kid fresh in the NBA here and now. It'd be, be terrifying. Right. And when I said, like, kind of up in in the owner's box, he's going to be very much hands-on because, you know, the number one rule of, like, uh, a business is, and we've seen this when he's um, put the talent around him in these different teams, you got to have the structure and the team around you to make it successful. And I think LeBron is a great at identifying talent that suits what he's not good at and putting those people around him. I mean, for like, he's had his, his like rap pack of like Maverick Carter establishing himself in, in the business world. So he knows how to put the right people around him. He's going to do that same thing when he's an owner of a team. And just because you're vocal doesn't mean you're hands-on. Like I, I just think you're someone right. like Jeannie Buss is, is way more hands-on than probably a Mark Cuban is, but because she's not doing, you know, like uh shark tank, it doesn't get the same kind of credit. Yeah, he'll, yeah, that's. I think that's a good comp. I think he'll be like a genie bus style yeah. owner. All right. Well, moving on to from the front office to kind of right down the hall to the general manager position, Benny. We've got some names on the move in the NBA this week, and we're gonna do a quick uh, a hard count here to see if are you interested in going further on this move or are you like next? Okay. So first name. Still in the news, Andre Drummond. Next. Next. All right. Next name up, and we talked about him last week, Myers Leonard. Yeah, let's keep that one. All right. Because you wrote one of the funniest (laughs) texts I've seen in a while, which is in the voice of Mickey Harrison going, all right, kid, I hope your girlfriends, your wife enjoyed Miami. Now enjoy Oklahoma City and your noodles and ketchup. <laughs> it's definitely something happened there. There was no way he was staying. 
He's now a dead contract. I don't see Oklahoma City playing him. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they've already said they're down. moving on. Yeah, they got young players. They got no need for a Myers Leonard right now. So he's turned into uh, quickly one comment, you know, a really vile comment has turned in, into a uh, nothing but something you put into a trade machine. You know, <laughs> that's that's all it is now. All his all his uh, NBA career has become is the number on his contract. So I don't know. Sorry, bud. I mean, there's a nice two-way spot maybe available for him. Um, though that doesn't even exist because the G League season's over. Like, yeah. congratulations to the Lakeland Magic. Um, Listen, when you're when you're a borderline <laughs> player like him, you just can't get away with stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's a it's a good rule to live by in corporate America as well. Keep it clean. Stop talking <laughs> shit to the Call of Duty kids. You know. <laughs> All right. Next up, Trevor Ariza. Yeah, he's 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 not helping anyone. We can pass I, on that. I mean, I feel like the big thing there for Miami was they undervalued Jay Crowder a lot last year and what he brought to them in the bubble and uh Phoenix is kind of reaping up. Uh by the way, Phoenix picking up Tory Craig as well. That didn't work out in Milwaukee, yeah. but I feel like for a team like them, you know, they're slowly gathering pieces. They're in that in that top four conversation in the West. I've been high on Phoenix all year. I really like what they're doing. Uh, it's a perfect pickup for them and someone, you know, that uh, could really come in handy if, if you run into an injury or something as you're going down the line. You know, if if you wind up with uh, 15 Tory Craig minutes a night <laughs> going into the playoffs, you don't mind that. No. All right. Next name up on our list, P.J. Tucker. Yes, we got to talk about this. So this is probably the biggest move that's happened so far and kind of the biggest one that could uh, change the landscape of the NBA a little. Mm. Well, A, it indicates Houston is done. Yeah. They're obviously in full-on tank mode. They brought up Kevin Porter Jr. from the G League <laughs> to run the team and play point. Yeah. Uh, Oladipo's in and out. Wood just came back. They're, uh, I think at this point, they're tagged as one of the two highest percentages for the number one pick next year. So Houston's out. Um now, what this means for Milwaukee is really interesting. Now, first off, all right, mm-hmm. you're you're the deer man. Yeah. Man. Okay. Is PJ Tucker starting? I think it depends on the opponent. Um, I think that if oh tr- yeah, if, it's if, not really a boot and holes or thing to do to switch up your start. I know, right? That's I mean, in and but in also in in an ideal world, Giannis wouldn't be bringing the ball up. I mean, you have Drew Hol- Holiday there for crying out loud. No, but I think that there. There should be a roster um, that you tried out during playoff time where it is Drew at, at your point guard, Chris at, at your shooting guard. Then you almost put Tucker at the three, Giannis at the four, and then Lopez at the five, but not playing near like the basket, kind of um, playing a little bit more near the perimeter. I, I could see you having that. My, pre- my my preference is you have Giannis at, at the five because, you know, if you try to create the wall around Giannis, you have like capable three-point shooters on the outside. That's what they should do. Whether Boonholzer will do that or not is to be determined. But what I like about this move is what he can bring you on defense. I know people have been talking about how he's been only shooting 31% from three this season, but you also got to look at, at the team and the service he's been getting. When he was getting service from Harden, those numbers were way up further. Drew Holiday kind of good at getting the ball where it needs to go, so I really like that there. But the defense, um, you know, they've kind of been doing more switching up this season, which right. I love. And, you know, 
Very few guys in the league work harder than P.J. Tucker, really kind of work on the small things. I So I love that. He's already bought in. I already saw him walking into uh, the Pfizer forum with the Marquette Jays, which immediately yeah, right. had my heart. So P.J. Tucker, love this move from Milwaukee. John Horst, not bad. You're putting a squad together, pal. Here's what I want to see, though. Yeah. That, this lineup you talk about with Brooke, Giannis, P.J. Tucker, Middleton, and Holiday. Yeah. See that lineup having a pretty serious glut, especially yeah. on the offensive end. I don't like it. I think that's when you can still functionally box out Giannis and you're looking at options out in the corner that are Brooke Lopez, PJ Tucker, some people who can't take you off the, the ball, can't take you off the dribble. So I really want to see this functional lineup with Giannis at the five, mm-hmm. my boy Brooke Lopez. <laughs> One of the best Nets of all time. I'll never say an ill word about Brooke Lopez. And I know he's one of these metrics guys, you know, like you watch the game and you're like, what's Brooke doing out there half the yeah. time? And then you look at the numbers and you see that he's, you know, a big advantage because of his rim protection and stuff. But I love this idea of a lineup with Dante DiVincenzo out there alongside with Holiday and Middleton with Giannis and Tucker up top. I think it gives you enough defensively against you know, the bulk of the teams in the league, uh, you know, who don't have a really, really uh, dominant uh, ball dominant center. So that's kind of the lineup I want to see, but I don't see Budenholzer breaking up the Brooke Lopez starting situation. He's a little scared. He he fears change. And also don't sleep on Dante. Dante's had a nice year. I want him in there. I want him in the starting five. I do. Cause the thing I think that lineup that you talked about doesn't have, is enough people who can just take you off the dribble, who mm. can who can create a little penetration themselves and get things going. And Dante, you know, even though he shoots at a pretty low clip sometimes, yeah. he's, he's good at that. He's active, you know? All right, next name on our list. And, uh, you know, he's been eyed by a bunch of the West Coast contenders. Terry Rozier. Yeah. I don't see it happening. Mm. That's, that's one of those ones where I think people – you know, uh, when you get to trade season, all the pundits are looking for every possible glut in the league where someone <laughs> can give something up. Yeah. But uh, I think they've been safely running this three guard lineup with uh, Rozier and Graham and LaMelo Ball. And I think it's been pretty good. There seems to be enough minutes for everyone. I think Charlotte's more than sick of not making the playoffs and in a, uh, a softer uh, year towards the bottom if they wound up getting in there as like a five seed or something which is possible who knows they might be yeah. able to get around so it's like I think Charlotte is uh, is going to go the opposite I don't mm-hmm. see them being sellers right now nice yeah no I'm totally right there with you especially to the Clippers. I mean, Charlotte has probably had a better year than they even thought when they started the season. So they're like, let's see what we got. James Brago's done a good job. Um, And yes, Charlotte has never been, I mean, you don't make the Gordon Hayward deal unless you're trying to like do something this year. Um, So yeah, definitely not the time to break up the Hornets, especially when don't get fooled by by two good weeks of Malik Monk, you know, <laughs> thinking all of a sudden he can get like 30 minutes a game. Like the, the team looks good. They look good for once. And you have this foundational piece that you're trying to build around. Why would you gut the team in the middle of a playoff yeah. run? doesn't make any sense. I like that the Zach Levine talk has died down. So we're not going to do that, but uh, we're going to talk about one more name on this list. Uh, mm-hmm. That's Tampa's own Kyle Lowry. 
Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Now, I think this is one of the ones where, like, it's just fascinating because if you put Kyle Lowry on the Los Angeles Clippers, I can't think of a better fit in the league than Kyle Lowry being on the Los Angeles Clippers. It would be perfect, and it's everything that team needs. But, again, I don't see what they're giving back. And the the thing in Toronto – and one of the things that I think Masai is like very conscious of is this is a diehard fan base. They love their team. They love Kyle Lowry. Mm. If you're going to get rid of Kyle Lowry, you need you need a ransom. Yeah, you need a full ransom to get that crew on board with that move. And uh, I don't see the ransom coming. You know what I mean? I do like I do think Toronto's in a bad spot. You know they're. Uh, what you know, 17 wins now. They're a mm. good six games under 500. Um, you know, with the East being what it is, looks like they're getting into some playing games and some tough series early on. When you look at the team on paper, though, I could see them winning a lot of those series. And there's been a couple times this year when you know, Lowry and uh, Van Vliet and Powell. Um, are all healthy together. You know, that's they, they, they're without Van Vliet. They're without Ananobi most of the season. So I don't know if they're going into crisis mode yet, but I got to say some of the destinations for Lowry are awful tasty when you, when oh, you, yeah. start, look, when you start looking at the match. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a nice match, but I just don't know if the value is there for Toronto yet. People love doing the Philadelphia thing with him as well. Like, there's nothing right. more that writers love than a narrative and him going back home to the hometown, sure. Villanova, all of that stuff. But yeah, man, I mean, I think that you know that that's not going to be a deal that we're going to see. Maybe something happens in 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 the off season, but I think for right now, Lowry's stand put up there. I've also heard. I've always heard from a couple people. Who's the last person you'd fight in the NBA? Kyle Some Lowry. people say Kyle Lowry. Yeah. I, I want mean, to scrap with that boy. OJ Mayo was the an- that answer for a long time, but now he's what like, was he really? Yeah. yeah, there's a dude. There's a lot of uh, that that Larry Sander dude. I know I go back to that crew all the time. Off the like on the court, they struggled, but man, people forget Larry Sanders threw a guy through a glass window at a uh, at a club in Milwaukee. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Benny, one more story to get to today. The NCAA tournament is underway, and just like he does every year, uh, the bracketologist-in-chief, Barack Obama, back in the news, releasing his bracket as we speak. And, Benny, do you want to dissect 44's bracket over here real quick? I mean, let's look at the top of it. Let's look at the top of it. Okay. Who's he got going into Final 8 and Final 4? All right, so let's go. He's got his Elite 8 of Gonzaga... USC, oh my, see, if you're going to be a president, you got to have good handwriting or do it on ESPN.com so there's just print. He's got this Obama flair going. All right, let's see. Gonzaga, USC, all right. Michigan, I think that says Michigan, Texas, uh, Baylor, Ohio State, Illinois, Mm -hmm. and Houston. Uh Solid picks. And then he has a final four of Gonzaga, Michigan, Baylor, Illinois. Um, you know, and and who's he got taking it? He's got Gonzaga taking it. Which, all by right. the way, I just want to get on to one Gonzaga thing real quick. People sure. talk all the time about like, oh, they're chasing Bob Knight, Indiana, nineteen seventy six. Does anybody stop and think that 
These kids don't give a shit about that. Heck, their parents weren't even born in 1976. Yeah, that's a good point. No, I don't. No, I don't think they care at all. Actually, come to think of it. But yeah. So all right. So I can't beat up Obama's bracket too much, considering we have the same final game. Yeah. Okay. Same. I got Gonzaga, Illinois in the national championship. The only parts we disagreed with fully. Or over there in the South, I have Ohio State upsetting Baylor, getting into the Final Four. And then I mess with the East bracket all, all around. I have Florida State upsetting Michigan. I have Connecticut upsetting Texas. Oh, that's for a, a bad Florida pick. State-Connecticut Sweet 16 with Connecticut going into the Final Four. Wait, UConn, what the fuck? Gonzaga in the Final Four with Gonzaga taking it. So I'm, I'm not too far off from Obama. I got to say the guy watches hoops. You know what I mean? I'm not going to, I'm not going to rip him too much. Now, let me ask you this. How does he release his bracket? Well, like how does he grace us with his bracket every year? So we know that he used to do it on ESPN. That's uh, yeah. how a uh, good friend Rebecca Loba would go to the white house every single year uh-huh. um, and do that. But now he just releases it on his website. It, there, there's no hour special anymore. Just, um, just here it is. Here's my drop. Yeah, he, he's like, here's what I'm reading. Here's the music I like. Here's my bracket. <laughs> he's really gracing us with everything Obama these days. And, you know? uh, and, 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 and I'm sure that there's a hefty uh, payday from one of the companies we talked about earlier. No, but Benny, the fact that you have, you, you have the University of Connecticut out of the yeah. Big East in your Final Four. Yeah. That's yeah, so I crazy. Do. Yeah, I sure do. That's the, the only parts I went. And then, listen. Rutgers hasn't been in a long time, okay? Yeah. It's been a minute. My bracket is named Ron Harper Jr. for president. <laughs> uh, and I do have Rutgers defeating Clemson in the first round, upsetting Houston, number two Houston in the second round. Mm. Then I have them uh, beating San Diego State in the third round. And then finally, I couldn't take them past the Illini. That team's <laughs> just too good. Yeah. So I gave up there, but there is no way I was giving up on my boys going into this run but i gotta be honest i really think the big 10 teams yeah. and the um the middle of the country teams are going to kind of have an easier time yeah than uh than some of the other teams i think that's a real consideration so uh yeah yeah that's my bracket but i think obama did a pretty good job i mean you know gonzaga illini how, like what's yeah. the percentage of people that have gonzaga illini right in the final? probably exactly. get 80 percent. so he's safe yeah you went too safe, you know. <laughs> no, I'm gonna say this, and in, in Bernie terms... Sanders would have put <laughs> oh, Loyola of Chicago in there or something. You no, know? he would have sided with Iona and Rick Pitino being back been... in, in in the yeah, mix I, of fifteen. No, <laughs> you know, he would have taken Liberty, Liberty all the way. <laughs> <sighs> okay, um, no, but I'm just gonna say in terms of filling out your own bracket and stuff like that, Benny. You know, I watch exclusively the Big East and whoever right. Marquette's playing. Um, Big East way down this year, admittedly. ACC down this year a lot as well. But the Big Ten really rose to kind of be the cream of the crop. The the top of the SEC was really good, and uh, the Pac-12 kind of meandering. So, um, if you're going with teams from the top of the Big Ten, definitely do that. Top of the SEC as well, and then. But I mean, Jalen Suggs is just out here. He's gonna be. Um, one of the few guys that didn't cho- choose to go to Ignite. And I think that this is going to be um, a huge draft month month for yeah. him. Um, so, yeah, I'm just really a- excited uh, for 
the country to fall in love with him like you know those of us that watch sure. Hoop all the time have. and i gotta say i gotta say i'm pleased as punch <laughs> about duke and and kentucky not being in the tournament uh i like that they you know the five you know the, going into next year's draft apparently from everything i'm reading this top five is a can't miss top five and whoever gets a top five pick next year is getting a seriously uh, good player. And when is the last time one of those players wasn't coming out of Kentucky or Duke? It's been a while. Yeah. So it's really a credit this time to USC, to Gonzaga, to um, uh, Oklahoma State, and to the then to the G League team for for getting these top five players to some different fucking programs for once. I was honestly getting bored of it. And uh, the fact that a number one pick is going to more than likely come out of USC or Gonzaga or Oklahoma State, that's fun for me. I like yeah. it. Something different, you know? Kate Cunningham, man. Oh, man, I saw him tear up Marquette yeah. in, in December. But I mean, Benny, his, his floor is Chris Middleton. Uh, <laughs> it's a pretty good floor. Benny, yeah. by the way, this bracket gave us a little hint into uh, Michelle Obama's political future. And I don't think she has one because if Michelle Obama was going to run for president, he would have picked Wisconsin over North Carolina because you need Wisconsin way more than <laughs> you need true. North Carolina. So there you go. A little little Easter egg in Barack Obama's bracket here. That's a valid point yeah. right there. All right. Plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at the tune podcast at gmail.com. Two P's in there. Don't forget it. Uh, you can follow us on all the social channels, uh, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, TuneUpHQ. Follow, subscribe, do all of the things, please. If you want to follow the big man, he is at Benny Horowitz. One, number one in your mind, number one in your heart, number one on Twitter. I'm at Danny underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else? Yeah. Everyone have a great week. Be good to each other out there. You've been listening to The Tune Up. <laughs>